Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we'll be discussing All the Lives We Never Lived by Anuradha Roy. This novel is about a family in a village near the Himalayas in India at a time of great change um, during World War II, but also uh, the move towards independence in India and partition. And it's told from the perspective of Mishkin, who uh, is at the time of writing um, in his 60s, trying to write a will, but uh, in the process of that, looking back over his childhood and his life and the way that his parents' marriage fell apart and his mother left, um, something that came to define his whole life. And so w- we see the dynamics of this family and his father is someone who is uh, a nationalist who is very involved in uh, the nationalist cause um, and his mother who is this enchanting sort of artistic uh, painter and is also very interested in dance um, and this uh, German painter comes to their village Walter Spies who is a a real uh, historical figure um, who so this is sort of a work of historical fiction And he comes and uh, Mishkin's mother ends up leaving with him to Bali, uh, where she had visited as a young woman um, when she went to meet this uh, poet called Tagore, who is also uh, a real poet and passages from, um, you know, real documents that Anuradha Roy found are are sort of uh, strewn through the novel. Uh, But it really is about the question of, of freedom and independence and the way that uh, that sort of very fervent idea of nationalism uh, can be repressive in ways. And so uh, this conflict that um, Gayatri, his mother, faces between her love for her son and, you know, but also her own ambitions and her own desire for freedom um, and the need to sort of, you know, make something of her life that she can't uh, within the marriage. Um, And his father also leaves him at one stage on this sort of journey of self-discovery, but comes back uh, with a second wife who who also, you know, struggles to have any freedom within that marriage. Um, So it's a really interesting book in the way that it explores... uh, those tensions um, between dedication to a cause, dedication to a country, uh, but also uh, individual freedom and whether that's possible. Um, and, uh, you know, the narrator is a horticulturist and he's sort of 
almost sort of failed his father by not joining the nationalist cause at this important moment of independence. Um, and it also, you know, through his attempt to understand why his mother left, um, goes back and, and, and really explores the whole idea of, of memory and trying to document that and explore and understand it through writing, even through painting. Uh, and so, you know, the process of, I think, writing this book is also an exploration of how we interrogate and explore the past through the, the process of writing itself. It sounds like a really richly textured piece. And I think that notion of the, the kind of microcosm of the family and the macrocosm of the state is such a fascinating one. And I think it's something that a number of our writers in the shortlist explore. I'll read a short extract. In telling the story of any life, and certainly when telling our own, we cannot pretend we are narrating everything just as it happened. Our memories come to us as images, feelings, glimpses, sometimes fleshed out, sometimes in outline. Time solidifies as well as dissolves. We have no precise recollection of how long things took, a few days, weeks, a month. Chunks of time are a blank while others grow to be momentous in retrospect. I believe this is true for most people. Over the years, when friends contradicted me over details, my uncertain hold over my memories began to make me think I could no longer recognise myself in old photographs. The person in those black and white images was somebody else. Think too hard and you might think yourself into lunacy. In one of his poems, Rabindranath Tagore says... I cannot remember my mother, but when, in the early autumn morning, the fragrance of the shioli floats in the air, the scent of the morning prayers in the temple comes to me as the scent of my mother. And I, I just think the way that um, Roy really immerses us in this time, um, and uh, Gayatri particularly, uh, this woman who is really at the heart of this book, um, is so vivid and is someone we come to know in different ways, both through uh, Mishkin's sort of vision of her, you know, and uh, as his mother, but also there's a really interesting twist in the book at the end where we read letters um, from her in her own voice and the the change that that brings in our perspective is really interesting. Um, so it's it's a, a really fascinating novel uh, and it was wonderful to speak with Roy about it. Yeah, I look forward to hearing that now. So we might go to the interview with Anurada Roy. Thank you, Anurada, for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. And sorry, we can't be welcoming you to Dublin. <laughs> uh, tell us a little about where you are now, where you're based and how, uh, you know, the last uh, while has been with the pandemic. I know that it's hit India quite hard. Um, and so how has it been for yourself? Well, I live in a very tiny, remote little town. It's actually just a village on the edge of a forest in the Himalayas. So we've felt shielded from the worst of it in the sense that you don't feel the sense of paranoia I've seen when I've gone down to Delhi once, where you feel as if your whole, you know, whatever you touch is infected because the rate of infection is very high there. And here our problems are different because it's so remote. Uh, 
when the virus does climb up, we had hoped it would not be able to get here, but now it has. And so the full extent of our health system is being ex exposed, that it's extremely rudimentary in rural areas. And if we do fall ill here, we have to travel about 10 hours to find a good hospital. And then there are other strange problems because uh, you may have read that the migrant workers in India had to go back home. Most of them lost their jobs. And the place I live in is the kind of place from where people leave to go to the cities to work. So now we have this influx of people who've come back home and it's jobless youth. And the whole school and college education system has moved to the internet. And the internet is extremely unstable here because it's a forest and our cables are overhead, they run through the trees and monkeys jump around on them and it snaps at any moment. I hope it holds now. So everything, well, you're, you're, it's holding for now. Yes. I can hear you very clearly. But uh, yes, so it, it is, you know, there's a lot of insecurity, I think. And you've, you've and it's this, you know, this whole suddenly having to confront all the big questions we normally don't think, we don't want to think about, like loss and death. And, you know, when will you see your family again? This is so cut off. I just can't get to the rest of my family, which is in Calcutta. So it's the same kinds of problems everybody has, but in slightly different form. And you've written, I think, recently about inequality and how it's really, you know, um, deepened or exposed uh, that inequality uh, in, Absolutely. in India at the moment. Because it's never been clearer how alone the poor are. They've they've been left completely adrift through this pandemic. They've gone back to their villages, most of which are even less equipped to handle medical emergencies than our place is. So it's and they are unemployed. There's it's it's a real crisis here. Actually. You've written a lot in in this is your fourth book, uh, All the Lives We Never Lived. Um, and in each of your books, you've you've written about social challenges and challenging times in history. Uh, All the lives we never lived sheds light on some massive and, and quite difficult events in history from World War Two to partition and the struggle for independence in India. But its focus is on one family's experience uh, of separation and their sort of experience of those times and those challenges. And the narrator, uh, Mishkin, who we're introduced to at the age of 60, uh, trying to write his will, but ending up sort of writing about his youth and uh, the start of his life and trying to understand I think what defined it and one of those things was the departure of his mother Gayatri with a German man very suddenly and uh, how this sort of shaped, you know, his his childhood and trying to understand why she left. Um, and it was this German man who's a, a real man, uh, Walter Spies, um, who is a painter uh, who kind of brought you to this story. So it was his history, his experience in Bali, I believe you were there, um, visiting yes. a, a home of his. 
um, yeah. when the sort of idea for the novel came to you. Um, what what sparked the idea for you? How did you go from uh, learning more about um, this painter to this sort of novel that centers on the experience of Mishkin? It was actually, I think, the other way around because Mishkin, the boy at the center of the novel, uh, has been with me for a long time in different ways as this intensely lonely child who can enter paintings and live a life of the imagination. And I I started, actually, I think this uh, novel began with a very, very small short story written years ago. And it was a, it was called a micro story. It, it was actually written for a company that manufactured fine teas in Singapore. And I was asked to write a 180 word story, which would be printed on the cover of the tea bag. And it would be printed in invisible ink. And when you were soaking your tea, you had to hold this tea bag over the vapor and the words would slowly appear of this story. And then they would disappear as the paper dried up again. And for this, it was very appealing to me, this idea of a story appearing and disappearing like a dream, you know, and novels often seem to do that. You wake up thinking you had a brilliant idea and then it's all gone. But in this case, the story I wrote for that tea bag was about a woman who lives a, an apparently contented, very normal domestic sort of life but every day when her husband has left for work she enters that Matty's painting I'm forgetting what it's called now where there is a there are a bunch of dancers dancing naked in a green I remember the picture very clearly they are brown and they are dancing on a green ground yeah so she enters this painting and she becomes one of the dancers. One day her husband comes back home early and because he never looks at paintings, he can't find her inside that and he can't find her in the house. And she is in a kind of trance of ecstasy on the grass in the painting and he just walks past. And that was the story. And I think when writing the novel, this character who enters the paintings really divided up into two for me and became both the boy and the mother. And the mother was the painter and the boy is the one who enters her paintings. And the father really is the husband still in that short story who is oblivious of all this and cannot live a life of the imagination at all. So that's how I think the novel began. So this but is... after that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. This was the idea that you had been sort of looking for a way to yeah. explore. And, you know, it's um, it's just a lot of indirection when you're writing. And I didn't start out with any of the themes that later entered the book. I started out with just this image. And then I, I was thinking, oh, I, I read, I think it was in History of the World, Julian Barnes's History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters, where he describes, I don't remember the exact details, but he describes the writing of a novel very beautifully as a, his, the images of a ship 
and the captain appears to be very much in control and he is shouting commands to people down below but actually there is no one down below and you don't know if that very fragile ship of illusion will make it to the other side as a thing with life and you know breath in it and where it will go during this journey this, that, that's what really was the case with me that i had no idea when i started where the ship was headed but it took me to bali and to walter spies and i mean you went through a process i guess of fleshing out this idea and you did a, a lot of research and some of yes. the passages in the book are actually taken from biographies or sort of source documents that you translated and so how, what was that process like of coming with this you know quite um uh you know sort of uh, this fictional idea this idea of the painting and and these two characters and then fleshing it out through your research what was that process like i found it you know writing this book was just an exhilarating thing for me it was i there was not one day when i didn't feel except during revising when i felt everything was falling apart we all go through those things bits of you know now and then you feel as if it's not holding together it's not working all of that happened but the research part of it was just absolutely wonderful because i read memoirs letters books on the war i discovered my bengali again i had almost stopped reading in bengali but i discovered this fascinating travelogue written in the 1920s of uh Tagore along with a whole bunch of artists and writers going to Bali to rediscover for themselves the links between India and uh, Southeast Asia which actually went back to before the 10th century so it was pre you know pre colonized india's links with the world outside that they were out there to discover when i started reading about bali i had found that most of the accounts were by people from the west because i was reading in english and these were all accounts in english or translated into english but i wanted to know what was it like to be an indian traveling to bali at that time and i had not thought i'd find anything but then there were all these this wonderful journal which was literally day by day describing absolutely everything not just in bali but southeast asia and the best thing of all even more than this was to discover a novel by uh, an aunt of mine which i had never read which is also in bengali and this aunt uh, is quite a famous bengali poet called moitrey devi she is dead now and in the 1930s she fell in love uh, with the romanian philosopher mircea eliade who came to her house as a student her father was a teacher of philosophy and this boy came to their house to live there as a student and study and the two of them fell in love and her father was a patriarchal dictator and it was actually he he put an end to it he sent away the uh, romanian as soon as he found out and she had a kind of nervous breakdown and was completely crushed by the whole thing and it really helped me to 
understand so many things about that was when I think the themes of the novel started to come together of how deeply patriarchy and nationalism are entwined. And Mishkin because in, uses yeah, that passage, or Mishkin uses that text as well in the in the novel itself yes, to try yeah, and understand yeah. his mother's relationship with Fees and why she left. Uh, so there's this interesting interaction between your exploration of that material yes. and then the character's exploration of those passages yeah. of text in the novel um, between reality and and history and and yes. fiction. I, I, you know, because I was mingling history and fiction, I actually wanted quite a lot of the original voices in the book. I wanted it to be a kind of symphony of these voices kind coming together and working together, but re remaining individual. And I don't know if I'm making sense, but uh, that was one of the reasons for inserting the translations from Moitre Devi. And because it was also a window into the imaginative world of a woman in the 1920s, she wrote the book much later when she was middle-aged. But it really showed how uh, for an Indian woman, colonialism begins in the home. It still does. And at the time when Gayatri's husband is making her fight for freedom from the British. Her fights are completely different. Her, her colonizing is primarily and first of all by her husband. And before that, in her case, she had a very uh, wonderful father who was very nurturing. But for most Indian women, first there would be the father, then there would be the husband. And it is the domination of these two forces which has got much more bearing on her life than any kind of state power to begin with. So, you know, I'll tell you something interesting even now. The other day I was um, filling up a form to renew my driving license. This is 2020. I'm renewing my driving license. I'm 53 years old. I still have to fill in the name of either my father or my husband on that form. My husband does not have to fill up the name of his mother or his wife. So it's not about a contact they'll get in touch with or whatever it is. It's just straightforwardly considering women to be, uh, you know, someone owned by another man. Yeah, and that ownership, I that I think that resonates with, I mean, uh, with Irish people. I, we had, you know, a rising, a revolution in which women took an active part. And then when the free state was formed, you know, the Constitution declared that, you know, women's place was in the home. And it yeah. became a very conservative and, you know, repressive society for women. Um, you know, and I think that experience where nationalism often, you know, uh, kind of sees the country as, as almost a woman's body to be reclaimed. And, Absolutely. And yes, you, you see that sort of that patriarchal um, yeah, yeah, power that comes with nationalism often. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, in the novel that comes across so strongly through the character of, of Nekshand, which is 
uh, Mishkin's father and, uh, you know, not only um, his mother, uh, Gayatri, who, you know, sort of flees the marriage and uh, that kind of sort of uh, lack of freedom that she feels, but also his second wife, who he brings home after he goes yes. off on a, a journey of self-discovery and, and leaves Mishkin completely alone um, with his grandfather. Uh, but even the second wife, you know, almost sets herself on fire because she feels yes. trapped within that that uh, that marriage and that that sort of control um, that is paralleled, you know, with um, some of the more repressive aspects of, of nationalism. Um, how was, you know, creating the character of Nekchand and trying to explore those that that patriarchal nature of nationalism within the novel? Um, and, you know, I, in India at the time, you know, obviously while you were writing at Modi's nationalism and the rise yes. um, of, you know, quite a far right form of nationalism in India. Uh, was that something on your mind as you were writing the novel? I think that, you know, when I was thinking of the, of how to formulate Nick Chand, how to, how to write him, the opposition between Gandhi and Tagore was very much in my mind. But while Gandhi believed in a kind of mass movement to remove the British, Tagore was far more a believer in individual freedom and creativity. And this led to quite a lot of debate between the two of them about, because the dominant idea then was that you must put aside the individual for the moment for the nationalist cause. So all your individual needs, aspirations, desires, everything had to be put on hold. And Tagore was very alive to the fact that nationalism could very quickly flip over into a kind of mob violence, into something that would turn on its own people. He said so in so many words that the nationalism that seems benign today could tomorrow turn into a weapon that you use against your own people. And I think this is what we are seeing worldwide now in all the far right movements where you are, uh, that's precisely what people are doing in, the, in India, of course, you can see it happening. And there's great intensity. Yeah, and I mean, you see, I, I think that moment where Nekchand buys um, his second wife the saris in the India, colors of the Indian flag, and, you know, almost just this uniform yeah. that she's required to wear. And it, it, it does, you know, it just suffocates any chance of individual freedom within that marriage because he is so dedicated. Um, I think he's. Well, uh, even quite apart from marriage, even today here, you are as a say a young girl or a woman you're told people try to tell you what to wear when to go out uh, you know things you can do you can't do people you can see you can't see who can you marry uh, all these things are sought to be controlled by mainly by men who have set themselves up as the arbiters and Tagore, who you mention, um, the poet is is you know part of the novel, and um, Gayatri she yeah. meets him when she's a young woman uh, with her father on the sea voyage 
to Bali um, and it's sort of the start of this journey for her and, and you know her father is very supportive of her ambition and Gayatri is really at the heart of this book I mean she's such a vivid character and um, she's an artist who really breaks conventions and has a lot of individual freedom and she you know is very strong willed and she makes this decision to, you know, to leave her son, to leave her family. Um, and I think it, in the book, it says that Nekchan sort of hoped that motherhood uh, would sort of bound the temper of her wild spirits. Um, and we see this conflict between uh, her devotion to, to Mishkin and, and her role as a mother and wanting yeah. to pursue her own ambitions, her, you know, to be an artist, to pursue her painting. And I guess Spies offers this sort of this escape that she feels she has to take in that moment. And she tries to take Mishkin with her, but uh, that doesn't end up being possible. Um, so what, you know, sort of led you to want to explore this this conflict between between motherhood and and between ambition um and her own sort of you know desire for individual freedom uh how did how did that become a focus for you within the novel i've actually been quite curious about this myself you know when you when i look back at all the books i've written uh, people have pointed out to me, and that is true, that there are an awful lot of children who are left alone by their father or mother for a short time or forever. This seems to be a recurring motive, and it probably has... I've, I've explored it in various ways, and uh, in this one, of course, Gayatri leaves him because she needs that freedom to be an artist. And she planned to take him, but it doesn't turn out that way. And what I wanted to do here was certainly to write about a woman who does not leave home because of a man. She runs away, she goes away. She doesn't run away, she goes away with Walter Spees and Beryl, who is with Walter Spees because uh, she wants to find a world for herself where she can work and be herself. And Spies is gay. She is not gone for romance. You'd be surprised that there were still some descriptions of the book mainly written by men, which uh, completely ignored this and said that she had left for love, whereas she is the anti-romantic. It's a very anti-romantic novel where she it is not as if she is not sexually passionate. She does fall in love with another man, not her husband. But that's not why she leaves the home. And she does not leave with that other man to set up another home. That's not important for her. So this was one departure. And then I, I did have in my first book a father leaving a daughter at home, not forever, just for a short time. But I think it may have to do with the fact that when we were little, um, or even till we were sort of teenagers, my father was a field geologist, and he would be gone for most of the year. 
and we were perpetually saying uh, goodbye to him because he he'd have to go off for work for six or eight months to live in tents in the field and although we accompanied him when we were little when we were school going age we were no longer allowed to go with him because we had to go to school and this i think this continuous uh, you know separation repeated separation must have uh, must be something i still feel i need to look at from different points of view to see what happens to the child who is being left in this way but gradually it turned from the child i think much more into the story of gayatri and what she thought she could find by leaving and it was not easy for her either it's not as though she left and was just blissfully happy where she was it wasn't like that at all you know we see gayatri first really through mishkin's eyes as this you know you know very inspiring beautiful um and you know kind of wondrous woman and primarily as his mother and when she leaves uh you know he he sort of experiences a very strong feeling of hatred towards her for a while and admits to i think wanting to burn her eyes out with cigarettes for a moment and so you know it's really she is a, she is a mother to him and she, nothing beyond that and then later in the book we hear her own voice come out through the letters that she sends back to uh, Lisa McNally who in her own way is you know her own woman and uh, a very sort of unique uh, character within the book who's living an an unconventional life as a woman um and a very independent life and in those letters i think between those two women we finally hear um you know all the complexities of of gaitri's experience and the conflicts that she experienced as a woman between those two roles between you know her need to fulfill her dreams and um you know her talents and but also her her deep love for mishkin and the pain that it caused her to to leave him no i'm i'm just thinking about <laughs> the book suddenly you know you write a book time passes and then you lose the sense of what it is like for somebody else to read it and when i heard you go through the different phases of gayatri's evolution in through the book it all suddenly came my own book came back to me and that's why but i was also thinking of there was a very famous book here actually we published it my husband and i run a small independent press which publishes mainly history and politics and one of the books we published a few years ago was called the princely impostor and it was by a historian called partho chatterjee and the princely impostor i read it's a brilliant book and i read it uh, absolutely intoxicated by how brilliant it was and it is really about how one person can be seen in very different ways by different people because in the princely impostor uh, a prince of a minor uh, sort of land holding in bengal dies and is has been taken to be cremated but there's a storm and before the cremation can take place the people have to leave the body and go away for a while and then the body disappears and many years later 
a man returns who claims it's very like the return of Martin Gare or a, a story of that kind. A man returns who claims to be the prince. And then there's a very, very long court case which ends up in the Houses of Parliament because this is in British India to be decided. And throughout, there are witnesses giving statements about this, the same man. But if you heard them about the same man, you'd think it was many different men because they each have such a different perspective on this man. And I think that probably in my, in my book, it is Mishkin himself who becomes different people through the book. He's a He's a heartbroken and lost child. Then he's an adolescent who starts thinking bitterly about his mother and all, you know, there's a pileup of grievances inside him. And then as he grows older, when we meet him, when he's 65, then by then he's had some distance and he's able to see her as a woman because, you know, people you lose stay the same age for you in a sense. And when he's 65, his mother is suddenly a much younger woman to him, who suddenly he can see that here's this 29-year-old woman who, who is uh, full of desires that she simply cannot fulfill. And that evolution helps him to see her complexity. And finally, when he discovers her letters, then he understands everything. And throughout the book, I mean, we see Mishkin talking about the various attempts to return to the past, to try and re sort of visit his experiences and to document them through, you know, he's writing about what he remembers, but he also paints, he, he you know, he draws trying yeah. to recapture who his mother was to him, you know, to kind of put her down on paper almost. And so throughout the novel, there's kind of a, a, you know, exploration of what memoir is, of why we write to, to sort of yeah. understand and recreate the past, um, which I thought, and even his role as a horticulturist, he mm -hmm. talks about, you know, sort of leaving the trees, you know, to history. That's his sort of contribution and almost the way that he's designing gardens and growing these trees is another way to... Um, you know, sort of plant something and, and create something that will last in time. Um, and, I, you know, I think writing this as, uh, how did you sort of decide to, to approach it in that way through him sort of writing to understand his own past and you writing him um, to explore these issues? He is, yeah, and Mishkin him he's seen by his father as a kind of idiot to be uh, interested in trees and horticulture when india is becoming a nation in its own right and so on and he he was he was very much uh, at the beginning i saw parallels between him and that's why he had this name because of the prince in the idiot who is who's a kind of innocent in a complicated world. And these things like planting trees and making uh, the place beautiful or understanding the value of an inheritance that is not buildings and land or money, but trees. These things are seen as foolish and antiquated. People see him as a kind of eccentric lunatic. And 
I wanted to write about him both as this person he becomes and also as the boy who has been left by uh, his mother. And I, I knew that I can't write about these two things. I want, I, he, the whole book came to me in his voice. So I could not write it from the outside as a kind of third person narrative. I, th I think it was a sort of, it was a choice I made because I wanted a grown-up's perspective on his own life. And that was the reason why I wrote it as a memoir, as him uh, recalling, remembering, trying to make sense, bringing his uh, adult understanding to his childhood experiences. And and the setting for the book in in Muntazir in this uh, you know small place by the Himalayas, we see sort of the effect of these global events of of World War Two you know and how they impact this you know kind of rural place where in very tight knit community um, and I think that Mishkin talks about you know. I think two people died in the time and and those deaths came to signify the the impact of the war. But it also I, I the book talks a lot about I think different ways to see colonialism and and mm -hmm. ways to to really understand its impact and um you know in in Bali uh when Gayatri is in Bali she talks to a woman there who says, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the Dutch or the Japanese. Yes. It's both, you know, both are colonial regime. Um, and even in the first line of the book, when we talk about Spies being seen as an Englishman and, you know, yeah. uh, Michigan's father is very specific that it was a German that his his wife ran yeah. off with. But there's an idea that any foreigner, you know, is British because it's this yeah. idea of an occupying force. Um how did you want to explore colonialism through the novel and um, maybe to bring a different understanding to uh, that time and, and the experience of the war as in many ways, a, you know, different colonial forces um, in, in competition uh, from the perspective of people, you know, in India and in Bali? It was so ironic, wasn't it, the way that because Walter Spies left Germany because he wanted to, uh, he could see the rise of the right wing in the late 20s. And he wanted to get away from all that. And he stowed away on a ship to Bali, not to Bali, to uh, Java. And then he went on to Bali from there. And there he became a German in a colony ruled by the Dutch. Uh, and here he made a very, uh, quite a wonderful life for himself, as well as, you know, becoming absolutely vital to the, uh, to the arts in Bali. He was responsible for really retrieving their arts and for showing them to the world. He set up museums, collectives for artists and uh, recorded their music. There were many things he did uh, over there and yet, of course, he was doing it in a Dutch colony. So when the war broke out, he was an enemy alien in a Dutch colony and was sent off to an internment camp and then to a prison ship, which was going to first go to uh, Sri Lanka and then to India. 
and he died when the ship was bombed. So I could see through the whole trajectory of his life that individual lives are completely immaterial when there are these fights over nationalism and territory and, you know, abstract things of that kind, which ultimately completely crush the individual. And this is what Tagore was fighting against because he said that it was the individual who mattered as opposed to all these huge nationalisms which would eventually destroy us. So this setting up of the individual against the nation and that is still the case today. When we look at Walter Spies, he went through a witch hunt against homosexuals in Bali. That was one of the last things the Dutch were doing uh, before the war broke out. There was a very uh, sort of uh, very extreme uh, movement to weed out whatever they thought of as, uh, you know, people inimical to Christianity. That was the main problem. And there was a huge amount of surveillance at that time, not as now through phones and the internet, but in the way it happened at that time by asking people, by intercepting letters, evidence was cooked up, all that happened. And you can see how this can go on in different forms across regimes. You actually don't need to be colonized by a foreign power. You can be you know, you can be supposedly in a democracy, but not in a democracy at all, if all your institutions are being destroyed by whichever dictatorship you're living in. So I think those were the ways I was probably trying to respond to the present by looking at a time which seems to me very similar in many ways. And I think that, uh, you know, exploring his sexuality and, and the way that we don't often think of, um, you know, those laws that, that were actually brought in often by colonial regimes um, mm -hmm. against homosexuality. Uh, we don't often think of them as a colonial, um, you know, law uh, or we forget that they are. And, and I think his experience really highlights that, that, you know, it was religious missionaries coming in and trying to sort of whip up fear and hatred yes. um, in a, you know, in a community where it was, you know, sort of accepted, where this was not Absolutely. something that yeah. was persecuted. And so that they outside... found it very hard to find any witnesses because nobody thought that uh, by loving other men, he had done anything wrong in that cultural milieu. It was as you say, the people who came from the outside who made it all seem to be wrong. Through a certain rhetoric and through, yes, um, you know, yeah. trying to impose those um, those moralisms or that authority, uh, yeah, yeah. To, to change, you know, to turn people against each other in many ways. So uh, I think it really showed um, the power of that and something that's still very relevant today. You know, there's still... The influence of the the American religious right in many countries has driven that that persecution mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of of you know LGBT communities. So mm -hmm. I think it's something very relevant today. Um, but it's you know it's it really is a remarkable novel, and it does just through the perspectives of these people that we we come to know so well. Um, 
really sheds light on all these these issues that are so urgent, I think, at this moment to understand. Are you working on anything new at the moment going forward? What I, do you think is your <laughs> going to be your next am, focus? But it's very, very hard right now to because you can't go anywhere for just practical reasons. You can't go anywhere for your research. The, and this is just apart from all the anxiety that stops you, you know, concentrating on what you're supposed to be doing. But uh, I am trying to work on something, but I don't know what shape it'll take or when it'll get done. It's the kind of uncertainty everybody is going through has come to the hills as well now. Definitely. I think we need time to process what's going on as well and everything is yeah, changing yeah. so quickly. And again, you know, I know that there'll be a hundred uh, indirections and, uh, you know, routes taken which I'll come back from before there will be the novel that will... Uh, when you were outlining all the issues in this novel, it... it isn't at all as if I set out to explore those issues to begin with. I really, what I really wanted to do was to explore where the characters would take me. And that's always how it begins with me, with an image and with these human beings who are very real to me and the idea of their life, which is very real to me, but has to somehow reach the page and become something alive. And then to make sense in this larger context of the world as we experience it now and did it have any connections with what was past? I know that even reading is, has been difficult, I think. You know, I've, I've definitely experienced during the pandemic, it's been hard to focus. And, but yeah. have, you been, have you been reading anything recently that, that you know, really resonated with you? I read a book by uh, called Euphoria by a writer called Lily King, who is American. And uh, she was actually writing about anthropology in the 30s, a novel. Uh, so that's what I've been reading. And it was, it was quite incredible. I mean, uh, but uh, generally I avoid reading fiction while I'm writing fiction. I've been reading nonfiction. I've been reading a book right now actually on climate change called Tales of Two Planets. Uh, which is edited by John Freeman. And the book came to me because I have a piece in it. But uh, the other pieces in it are just excellent. There's a poem in it by a poet I admire a lot called Tishani Doshi. She's an Indian poet. And she writes about the blue Mormon butterfly, which has gone off to a place as an some other place as an exile. And through that poem, she talks about the, the problem of being a climate refugee. And many of the pieces in that book are really uh, talking about how we have used up the world and there is no other world that we can go to anymore. I mean, and how people still don't understand this. I was thinking about that, funnily enough, reading the novel because... While, you know, Neck is so consumed with the political and the national 
Gayatri and Mishkin have this connection with the natural world that he doesn't understand. Yeah. And when I was reading that, I was thinking of, you know, the very urgent issue of the climate crisis and how, yes. uh, you know, almost Mishkin this, and Gayatri uh, would understand like, that. Absolutely. Because the, uh, this climate change book has one uh, essay by an Icelandic writer called Andri Snare Magnusson, which is about the glaciers that are melting in Iceland and the completely new geographies it's giving rise to that his children and grandchildren will know and that they will never know that there was a glacier there at all. They will wonder what you're saying. They'll say it was always a meadow full of poppies or whatever. But it's absolutely shattering to read that book and to see how across the world, because it collects articles from everywhere, that every you know you feel as if it's just we may say it's still retrievable but that it, it's really not anymore yes we're so concerned with our own territory and patch of <laughs> yeah. land and yet yeah. we really have no control or respect for it half the time you know it, it makes me feel absolutely dumbstruck to see people in this country uh fighting over things like what are uh, what are you allowed to wear or eat or think or you know things of that kind when actually you can see that in a few years there'll be nothing left to fight over well it's been an absolute pleasure talking today and uh hopefully we'll be able to welcome you to dublin soon you'll be able to make the journey but uh, i hope so wishing means, you all the best yes. with your work thank you so much take care thank you it's a pleasure talking to you Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.